Here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we've got Moses really pleading with, with Israel to accept what a wonderful God they, they have and how unique he really is. And he gives a, a number of uh, reasons why they, they should perceive the, the uniqueness of, of their God. Uh, verse 7, For what nation is there so great, who has God so near unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? Now, I'm reading there, basically from the AV, uh, a, a people so great who has God so near unto them. That is one of those unfortunate translations. The idea of that Hebrew word that's translated there, near, is of a, a kinsman, of a near relative. And that is how the word is very often used. So, what nation is there who has God as their relative, who has God as their kinsman, and like a, a good uh, relative, he's there in your time of need, the one who would provide for you, redeem you, stand up for you, one you could always turn to. Because he says there in, in verse 7, um, what nation has got God as their kinsman, as their near one, as their neighbor, as, as their close relative, uh, upon whom you can call whenever you have need. Because unlike in our days, in those days, the idea of having a, a kinsman, a relative, was that you could always turn to them. Now, in our days, unfortunately, family breakup and just the changed nature of relationships means that we don't necessarily realize that, that a, a family member is someone who's going to stand you, uh, you know, a bit of money if you need it, or this or that, someone who's there for you. And the idea then that God was Israel's close relative, their, their uh, kinsman, was the reason why, therefore, they should understand what a great people they were. It's three times emphasized here in verses 6 to 8 of Deuteronomy 4 that Israel were a great nation because of this closeness to God. Now, there was no other God that was supposedly in existence at that time, working with other nations, who was that close. This is the closeness that God wanted to have with Israel. Now, just thinking about this term, a great nation, it's the same term that's used right back at the beginning of the, the promises to Abraham, which form the, the new covenant that we're in. Through the seed, the Lord Jesus, God promised, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. It's Genesis 12, verse 2, Genesis 18, verse 18. So then it was God's plan that out of the seed of Abraham would come a great nation. And you see here in Deuteronomy 4, the definition of that greatness is not simply great in, in terms of numbers, but great in terms of relationship with God. And of course, we can easily forget that aspect of the promises to Abraham, that it was not just about a physical possession of a land, but also being blessed. And blessing is picked up in Acts 3 uh, and in Galatians and the New Testament and is applied really to the blessing of forgiveness and of having God as your God. Because one of the things that God promised to Abraham was that I will be your God and the God of your seed, of your children. So then the great nation, the greatness of Israel, of God's people, and that's us now in our generation, those who have been baptized into the Lord Jesus, is that we have God so close to us. Now, we've said that 
the promises to Abraham started off with this idea of, I will make of you a great nation. And here, in Deuteronomy, we read so many times that Israel are that great nation. But you remember, God wanted to destroy Israel, did he not? And he said that he would destroy Israel and make of Moses a great nation. Same term. If you want the references, it's Exodus 32, verse 10, and Numbers 14, verse 12. So then God is saying to uh, Moses, I will make of you a great nation and destroy Israel. In other words, I will fulfill my uh, intention to make the seed of Abraham a great nation, not any longer through Israel as I was planning to and as I started to, but I will do it through you because Moses was also a descendant of Abraham. So you see there how uh, God has a, an ideal intention, but he's, he's willing to change and to try plan B, plan C, or, or plan D. And I think then you see here how humble Moses is, because he keeps on talking now in Deuteronomy at the end of his life, uh, really in the last few weeks, possibly the last week uh, of his human life. He's here talking to Israel uh, and saying, you are the great nation. You're the great nation, knowing full well that it could have been him. It could have been his little family that were turned into this great nation. But he's saying, no, you are this. And they didn't probably understand uh, what Moses was getting at, because it's possible that they were unaware until the Pentateuch was written up. Israel perhaps was unaware of that uh, discussion between God and Moses. So here was then his humility shining through, really and truly wanting to see the greatness of others rather than his own. So he's trying to encourage them to see the greatness of their status, that they could have God as close to them as he had had God very near to him. Now, he goes on here to, to talk in Deuteronomy 4 about how they had actually heard uh, God's voice speaking to them. This is how close he wanted to be uh, to them. And how God himself, verse 12, the Lord spoke unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words. You saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he, he himself, declared unto you his covenant. So this closeness of God is seen through his word, through his actual speaking to, to Israel, that he himself spoke to them. And yet you remember what happened he appeared in the fire and spoke these words uh, directly to Israel, wanting a personal relationship with them. And they go running to Moses and say, oh, tell him to go away. You, you go and talk to him. You go and talk to him and you come back and you tell us what, what he says and we'll do it. They didn't want the direct personal relationship with God. They wanted to interpose some human religious system between God and man. And yet the whole wonder of it was that God himself was wanting to speak directly to his people through his word. Now, this unfortunately can be seen in all kinds of religious people who may uh, say they believe in God, but basically they want to interpose this religious system between them and God. 
They don't get the personal relationship with God because it's just too scary. It's too demanding. Because why then did Israel say this? Why, despite the wonder of having a God who spoke directly to them, did they say, we don't want to hear you? We want a mediator. We want Moses to go and talk to you, and then he comes and tells us. Well, I think it's because standing personally in front of God and in front of his son in our context it demands a huge amount from you. And we would far rather hide behind having an eldership, having a, a teaching ministry, etc. And I am just some faceless, insignificant little church member. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a teaching ministry and I'm not saying you shouldn't have elders. That is all, I think, part and parcel of, of human life in the church. But the essence is that each individual person that stands before God and he eagerly seeks a personal relationship with you. And at the breaking of bread, we particularly each personally come before the cross. And there is nobody standing in between you and the cross. No Moses, no mediator. It is you and him. Just as it will be at the last day, that there will be no sort of mediator between you and Jesus. And, uh, you know, some sort of lawyer that, that, that says, ah, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll go and talk uh, to him and uh, you can just wait here. Uh, you stand and I stand before him, both in this life and ultimately forever and ever in the life that is to come. So then this is our greatness in that sense, that God has spoken directly to us through his word. And yet I was just uh, saying to someone the other day that it seems to me there is a tendency to read books about the Bible rather than God's word itself. And I think that, that although that's understandable to an extent, because as the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, how shall I understand unless some man should guide me? On the other hand, it can go so far that again we are interposing between God and man. That again we are saying that uh, his word God, as it were, speaking directly from the fire to me, uh, is too much for me. Give me a book about it. Give me a mediator. Give me some guy to explain it to me, rather than me stand before him. It's the same with the difficulty, I think, in finding time for personal meditation, for quiet time with God in the mornings. Um, we make all sorts of excuses why I can find this time. Uh, but we know that you'll find time for what you really want to find time for, and that's as simple as that. It is this fear, I think, of meeting him. And that fear should not be there, because particularly for us, we are cleansed in Christ, and he loves us and wants to be so close to us. And he is, in that sense, our, our kinsman. And of course, you can see how these basic desires of God, back here in Old Testament times, uh, to be the kinsman to Israel, to be the one who came near to them, who spoke personally to them. You can understand how this kind of God had a son, how he worked out his plan of manifestation to, to Israel supremely through a son who had our nature and yet was his son. Now it's emphasized there twice at the end of verse 12, as we just read, that they heard the voice of the words but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he goes on to make the point that you should not therefore make the likeness of anything. 
into an idol because you, you saw no similitude. All you did was to hear the voice. What is in the similitude of God? What is in his image and likeness? It's human beings. We are created in God's image and likeness. It's clearly stated there in Genesis 1. Now, I understand that, and you can laugh at me if you wish, but I understand that as referring to our physical uh, body, our physical uh, appearance, our corporality. And yes, I do believe that God is not simply uh, a spirit. Uh, he is spirit nature, but he is not... Uh, some wisp of, uh, of air up there in the sky somewhere, some cloud or something. God is personal, and yes, I believe that he does have a form, and that we are made in that image. It's too much to believe for some people, but I do believe that's what the Bible teaches. And yet, in a moral sense, of course, we are so different from him. As the heavens are high above the earth, so his ways are above our ways. And yet, his intention then is to change our nature so that we become by nature immortal, etc., like he is, and also to change our mind into his mind so that we take on his mental image. And he does that through the medium of his word. So they saw no similitude when God appeared to them, exactly, because they were all standing there as a bunch of human beings. They were the similitude of God. But it's, it's emphasized twice. You saw no similitude, but you heard a voice. Uh, you heard the voice of the words. And so then, I submit then that God's intention was, and is, to change us who are in his image and likeness physically, into his mental image and likeness, and he does that through the medium of his word. Now, the very least you can take out of this is to read the Bible daily, because this is the way that God is seeking to work upon human minds and, and spirits and lives to change us and transform us. So then, <clears throat> this is all part of the evidence that we are so close to God and God is so close to us, that we are in his likeness. He is, in that sense, our kinsman, a God so near unto us, as we started off uh, by, by reflecting back there in verse 7. Now, verse 33, he goes on to say, Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and live? No other nation had had this with their gods. And yet the tragedy is that Israel turned around, as I say, and said, no, we don't want that. We want Moses. We want a, a, a human system of religion. We don't want this God speaking directly to us. It's absolutely tragic. And so it is with, with us. If you probe by way of self-examination your self-identity, who do you identify yourself as? A... a a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, a brother or a sister of the Lord Jesus? Is that what first and foremost is beating away in your conscience? Or is your self-identity, first of all, well, I belong to such and such a family. I belong to uh, such and such a church. I am a Christadelphian or I am a uh, whatever, Church of God. I am this, I am that. Uh, this is my uh, denomination. 
No, the the first thing, the 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 ultimate self identity must surely be that I'm one of God's children. That has got to be the 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 self identity that that we have. The the self perception that I am just uh, part of a religion it is terribly wrong. It, it really is. Because really it is an escaping from this personal relationship that God seeks to have with you. Now in verse 34 he says something uh, quite amazing. Has God, well the AV says, has God assayed? And that's actually right. Uh, The idea is, has God tried? And you look at every time this word is used uh, in the in the Hebrew Bible, and that is exactly what it means. Has God tried to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation, etc., etc., in the way that God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? God tried. I think you see in that the uh, limitation, if you like, of God, self-imposed, of course. God can do what he wants, as he wants, how he wants, of course. But because he is not the kind of God who is just trying to move us around as puppets, who is forcing people, therefore he is willing to go along with uh, human resistance to him. Who has resisted his will? Well, (laughs) billions of people is the answer to that one. Um, Because he allows it. Of course, you will not get anywhere by doing so, uh, but the point is God does not impose his will upon people. So then, he tried. He tried to take Israel out of Egypt. He really tried to do that. And did he succeed? Well, maybe physically, yes. But you remember Acts 7 um, talks about Israel when they came out of Egypt and they went through the, the wilderness. In their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Ezekiel 20 is also quite clear that they took with them the idols of Egypt through the Red Sea and carried them all the way through the wilderness to the Promised Land. So God tried to take his people out of Egypt. Just as really he is trying to take us out of this world. And yet we still want to keep going back to the old human worldly ways of thinking. And yet he really is trying so hard to bring us out. He's trying. I just find this an incredible idea. Because it shows the huge respect which God has for human free will. Otherwise, you would never encounter this kind of language about God, that the Almighty God tries to do something. He really wants people to come out. Now, you might remember that in, in your preaching to people, and sometimes you, you, know, you may focus upon someone who you pray for, and I hope you, you do that, uh, focusing on someone, praying for them, praying about them, uh, trying to help them uh, to, as it were, come out of Egypt uh, and join us in the journey to, to God's kingdom. And you can get the sense that it's, all, it's just you and your own efforts to persuade that person, and it seems pretty difficult and unlikely at times. But, you know, God is trying God is trying to get that person out of Egypt. And he will work in their lives in different ways. They may resist his will, but he all the same is trying to to bring them out. Now, 
in, in verse 37, he says that he brought you out, verse 38, that he might bring you in to the land. And there's a number of times in the Old Testament where you read that idea of God bringing his people out, that he might bring them in. And it's a reflection of the Hebrew idea or the Hebrew word for holiness, which really means those two things, to be separated from and also to be separated unto something else, something positive. And so I think that that is what God is doing with people, with us, that he's separating us from this world unto, separating us unto the things of his kingdom. And that's what he tried to do with Israel. And so separation from the world um, shouldn't be seen just as negative, that you shall not do this, you did not ought, uh, you ought not to, uh, I don't know, go to worldly places, uh, hang out with the world, etc., etc. That's or may be true, but um, the point is, you naturally don't want to do that because you are separated unto the things of God and the things of his kingdom. Uh, positively and the positive just takes over your life so that you're in that sphere of thinking about his kingdom and his work which means that the things of this world are simply not an item I know a number of people myself included we don't have television um, not because we made a conscious choice not to have one but because we simply don't have time for it because the positive things of God's kingdom take up your evenings, take up your days, take up your, your heart and, and thinking. So then, finally, I'd like to look down at verse uh, 40. You shall keep there for his statutes, his commandments, which I command you this day, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may prolong your days upon the earth, which the Lord your God gives you forever. I want to think about that, because this whole idea of uh, what I'm calling the, the human God, um, God coming down to our level, trying to do things, um, talking to us, uh, being our near kinsman, being in our image and we being in his image, etc. Um, th this has a bearing on, on what, I, what I think this verse is saying. Um, it seems to be saying that if you're obedient you will prolong your days on the land forever. Now, I'm suggesting then that it's talking about the prolonging of days eternally, that to prolong your days forever means that you will live forever in God's kingdom right now, if you're obedient. But just to give some background to that, formerly I didn't think that. I used to think that Oh, yeah, all these Old Testament promises about prolonging your days, etc., that this is really saying that under the Old Covenant, if you lived a good life, then you had a long life. And if you were wicked, then you died young. And uh, whilst that may have had a bit of relevance in the Old Covenant, it simply is not true, was not true to um, historical fact that the righteous died young, uh, and they didn't necessarily have a long life, uh, etc. And there's a couple of references to this Hebrew phrase, to prolong your days, which would uh, appear to disagree with the idea that if you're righteous, you prolonged your days. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 7.15, he observes that a just man perishes young, 
and a wicked man prolongs his life in his wickedness. So, you know, Solomon's saying that observation is such that it's not true. The, the righteous do not prolong their days. It's the wicked who often prolong their days, and the just man perishes young. Then in Ezekiel 12, verse 22, Israel, in their cynicism, observed that God's prophetic word of condemnation seems to have failed, that people were not getting condemned for their wickedness, and their days are prolonged. So it's as if there again the observation is that this promise about days being prolonged for being righteous uh, just doesn't come true. So then I'm suggesting that what he's saying here is that to prolong your days forever, as it says here in verse 40, means to have eternal life. Interestingly, this very same Hebrew phrase, to prolong the days, is found in Isaiah 53 verse 10. It's prophesying there about the Lord Jesus that he would prolong his days. Now, clearly not in this life, but in the resurrection. So, to prolong the days, in Isaiah 53 verse 10, specifically refers to eternal life in God's kingdom, or eternal life at the resurrection, let's say. So then, my... Conclusion then about this verse 40 is that what is really being what was really being said was that if they were obedient at that time, then they would live forever in the land. This is not the only example of this. I think you've got the same actually with Solomon. I think the kingdom of God could have come on earth in Solomon's time. And there's a number of other examples um, in the law of Moses and in biblical history where you encounter this, where people could have uh, had the kingdom of God come in their lifetime if they had been obedient. You know, if, uh, in Jeremiah, if yeah, you're obedient, you keep the Sabbath, etc., then they will enter through these gates uh, the, the, the Messiah, descendant of David, etc. Um, there were a number of times when God's kingdom could have been established. Now, of course, you might say, oh, but, you know, Jesus hadn't died then, and <clears throat> didn't God foreknow that wouldn't be the case, and so forth. Yes, it, in a sense, yes. And I accept that um, the issue of foreknowledge is, uh, is difficult, but all one could say is that all the uh, prophecies uh, and which we now look at as predicting uh, the, the death of Jesus or having fulfillment in the, the work of the Lord Jesus, all those prophecies would have come true in another way. That's all I can say. And they would have come true in a, in a way which had ultimate integrity before God. And that's, of course, the only thing that ultimately matters. My point is that just as God said to to Abraham, I'm going to make of you and your seed a great nation. And he started to do that through Israel. And then he changed it. Well, he offers to change, to destroy them and make of Moses a great nation. And then Moses persuades God, oh, don't do that. Go back to plan A. And here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses keeps on talking about how Israel are a great nation. How God has gone back to plan A. And how close God is to us. And how he tries, tries God... 34 aside, he tried to take a people out of uh, out of Egypt, etc. There are all sorts of 
uh, possibilities that God has opened up. This is, I think, the wonder of God and the, the utter wisdom that he has that with this huge array of possible futures, he allows mankind absolute freedom, absolute freedom of, of choice and such huge possibility that, you know, in this case, they could have prolonged their days forever, which I'm suggesting is the language of God's kingdom, uh, in the land there and then, if they had been obedient. Now, if God is sort of made of stone and without uh, feeling and everything is all worked out from the beginning and uh, etc uh, somehow the the wonder of all this is somewhat lost as you know i have a more uh, open view of of god in the sense that i think that he is far more open to us and i think that one gasps at his greatness and his wisdom that he can leave the future in that sense open to us um, whilst at the same time obviously uh, keeping it within some uh, some limits some some bounds um, uh, and can set these genuine possibilities before human beings and i think this of course highlights not only his huge respect of our free will but the huge significance of human decision making that the decisions we make for him and for his son have real and ultimate meaning and consequence.